Okay. King David, the man after God's own heart, rightly proclaims before the Lord. Then, came, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you also have spoken about your future in the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? Paul adds in Philippians, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility before God and man is a virtue every child of the king needs to strive for. A spirit of pride in human relations indicates a lack of humility before God. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians when he tells us, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? Humility is the only acceptable posture of a person in relation to the God who gives a wide variety of gifts on the basis of grace and therefore alone is deserving of all praise. Flesh is never to glory in God's presence. Paul explained how humility can be expressed. Instead of concentrating on self, each believer should be concerned for the interest of others in the household of faith, whether they are like us or not. This is, this is a hard thing because we tend to just go in our little circles of those that we, you know, jihad with, personality-wise, interest-wise, or whatever. Paul states in Romans, love must be sincere. That was a sizzler for me five million years ago. I can't even remember, but, you know, it's like, don't, it's not feigned. It's the sincerity of heart. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's in Romans 12. Paul began these specific exhortations with the key ingredient for success. Love must be sincere. Sincerity of heart is always the key. God's love, which has been ministered to believers by the Holy Spirit, must be ministered by them to others in the power of the Holy Spirit with all sincerity of heart. Just like we talked before, we're basically just cannelloni noodles. He pours in and we pour out. The word sincere translate in, translates in Greek to anipokoretos or something like that, and it means without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. And is used in Scripture regarding also love, faith, and wisdom. A long time ago in biblical times when they made clay jars, if they had cracks in it, they would fill it with wax so they wouldn't look like they had cracks. And so people would put them out in the sun to see if the wax would melt, to see if they were really uh, pure without, to denote no cracks. And it's the same same kind of thing. When the sun shines on you, where are the cracks? Are there cracks in there? Are you doing this with thing, you know, in your mind? Are you doing this with sincerity of heart? And, and sometimes it's like, you know, um, in Colossians where it talks about, um, you know, um, service to family, because that's really the hardest place to do it, 
I mean, it's easy to be nice to y'all, but you come home, it's like, why did you leave the toilet seat up or down or whatever, you know, again? You know, it's, it's always, you know, it's annoying. Those little annoyances are like, like foxes in the vineyards, and they hit, eat up your joy. They eat up your joy. But our faith is not to be one of fang character. It is to be permeate our being. Rather, we are to be sincere in all areas of our Christian walk, even in the heat of the sun, even in the trial. We don't want that wax to melt because that's what happens. In the heat of the trial, the real you comes out, right? When you're squeezed, the real you comes out. We are to have a true and sincere family affection for one another. In honor, giving place to one another. Bearing is a word the scripture uses. Bearing doesn't sound like that's an easy thing, does it? Bearing with one another and forgiving grievances against one another. Forgiving as we have been forgiven. This is out of love for and obedience to and following hard after our master. For Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And as Paul states in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whoa. And we are never to forget the prophet Isaiah's words either. He was despised, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was a, brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own ways. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> all this to save this scrawny neck. Indeed, we are all on level playing fields, every single one of us before the foot of the cross. Once you realize, this is Oswald Chambers, once you realize all that it costs God to forgive you, you will be held in a vice, constrained by his love. Spurgeon says, Jesus is the great teacher of lowliness of heart. Witness the master taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet. Isn't it true to say that on earth he was always stripping off first one robe of honor and then another, and then another, until naked he was fastened to the cross and emptied himself, pouring out his life blood, giving it up for all of us, until they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave. Like Paul says when he was in prison, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service that comes from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Remember, there is nothing, there is nothing that any of us could do to save ourselves. Not one thing. Not one thing. We are all found wanting apart from the blood of Christ. Okay, our scripture today is James 2, 1 through 13. My, and I'm going to read it. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom, he promised those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One who is properly related to the Bible is also properly related to the body of Christ. They are neck and neck. Jesus content, James continually stresses the importance of one's attitude toward God and his word. We should note how adroitly this inspired writer reveals the hidden evil of the natural heart. I mean, it's convicting. Just like I've told people before, if you don't change when you're reading the Bible, you're going to quit reading the Bible because it's so convicting. I mean, it's alive. It speaks to your very heart. It speaks to where we are. There seems to be such a gap between what God wants us to be and what we are. Our spiritual progress from conversion forwards takes time and effort to achieve God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and he has given us the indwelling strength and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The rest is up to us. We give to give our wills. Jesus tells us in John to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you've got to know what his teaching is. You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Greg Lloyd writes, The Secret to Spiritual Success. Have you ever had one of those days when it seemed as though everyone was smiling, even maybe laughing at you? Then you saw yourself in the mirror and discovered why? Because you had something big stuck in your front teeth? (laughs) (laughs) The mirror just told you the truth about yourself. And you saw that what everyone else was seeing. Then you had a choice. You could ignore that problem and leave it there. Or you could clean yourself up. The Bible is a lot like a mirror. It tells us the truth about ourselves. James wrote, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. It's not simply a matter of hearing God's word. It is in doing what it says. The Bible must be our model for how we think and live. Problems will happen, family conflicts will happen, temptations will happen, sickness will happen, or something else may come your way. We can't control that. 
But if we are in God's word and walking closely with him and in fellowship with his people, then we will have the resources we need to face those challenges as they come. And challenges will come because that is what's promised by Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulations. Dedicate yourself to worshiping God, confessing your sins, and hearing the word of God. God's word has something to say to you. It's personal. Spend time with it in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Continue in the word of God. This is a secret to spiritual success. Just do your part and then watch how God will bless you. Jeremiah states, but blessed is the man. Psalm 1 says the same thing. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by, I'm going to say someone, by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. <clears throat> but anyway, okay. Uh, James, well, blah, 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 blah. Finishing Jeremiah, he says, He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It doesn't fear when the pain comes. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. Don't you want to have always green leaves? It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. It never fails to bear fruit. It's Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. Um, he who stands with confidence serves with compassion. James has just made it clear that true religion finds an outlet in service, a service which both demands that a believer learn to accept others without prejudice and to assist others without presumption. James became increasingly specific and direct in his admonitions and instructions. He was obviously displeased with the inconsistencies that he found among them. Just as our Lord Jesus asked, why, why? You bother calling me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. In John, I mean in Luke six forty six, James attacked the attitudes these believers displayed toward others, and then complained of their failures to act as they should. He first condemned the attitude of favoritism, and gave suggestions on how to combat this obstacle to spiritual maturity. Nothing more clearly indicates the selfishness of the human heart than the way in which we are inclined towards the wealthy and cultured while neglecting or ignoring the poor and the ignorant. Against this tendency, James speaks out vigorously. It is hateful when found in the world by those who make no Christian or other religious professions at all, but it is far more despicable, however, when seen in the sphere where men and women come together presumably to worship God. In such gatherings, there should be no place either for such vulgar favoritism of the rich and famous or the contempt for the indigent and ignored. To profess faith in the one, in Jesus, who, although the Lord of glory, came to earth so poor that he had no place to lay his head or be buried, and yet maintain no respect of persons in this way, is most inconsistent. All are alike and precious in his sight. But the poor are, in a very special sense, the objects of his divine love and care. It's kind of like we've talked about before. When your children, you've got four children, one of them are sick, you're with the one that's sick. It's not that you don't love the other three just as much, but you're one that needs you the most. 
One must learn to accept others, whatever their status or class. He must show courtesy to all, compassion for all, and consistency to all. Equity, love, and faithfulness, and loyalty are the vital ingredients. Indeed, Jesus saw all people as valuable. Everyone is valuable. And did not think those high-ranking in society were better off than those in poverty. Indeed, he did not. I'm reminded of Jesus' actions specifically towards the poor, the societal outcasts, and the blatant sinner. The poor, the societal outcasts, and the blatant sinner. As he looked up, this is Luke 21, 1 through 4. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put all she had to live on. Here he points out in praise of this poor widow's actions, shaming those simply giving out of their surplus. The percentage of what she gave was larger than all the others. So Jesus' point was that her gift, though small, was more because she gave out of her poverty all she had to live on. Next we see Jesus' actions against the societal outcast. I love this story because men... Jewish men never talked to Samaritans, much less, or women, or much less a Samaritan woman. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman, and you ask me for a drink? How can you ask me for a drink? I mean, she was just like blown out of the water. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They despised them. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, she's coming. I'm not going to go into the exegesis of this, but she's coming in the middle of the day because she didn't want to see the other women. She's coming in the heat of the day because she didn't want anybody to be, you know, mock at her and laugh at her. She knew who she was. We know who we are. We know who we are when we close our eyes at night. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Everything besides me will make you thirsty. Is basically what he's telling you. It will never satisfy. You will always have the rocks in the cup instead of the water. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You're going to get not only water to quench your thirst, but you're going to be overabundantly blessed with water. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here and draw water. I don't want to come here anymore. It's embarrassing. I don't want to do this. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. See, he he, he makes it where you are the one that says, Oh, I have to admit. I have to admit. I have no husband, she replied, which was true. She had no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. 
Sir, the woman said, now she's deflecting. I'm, I'm changing the, I don't like the way this is going, so we're going to deflect and go over here. <clears throat> I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim to be in the place where we must worship in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. I know he's coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Whoa, whoa. Because of Jesus' kindness and love towards this Samaritan woman, this societal outcast, this woman that came to get water in the middle of the day because she couldn't be around any other women, discovers, goes back to her town and says, he's told me everything I ever did. You've got to come meet him. She became this huge missionary. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. G.K. Chesterton says, a thing must be loved before it is lovable. A thing must be loved before it is lovable. Isn't that a great line? Just what happened to her? In the above account, we discover to be true what was written earlier in John when the apostle writes, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John 1, 10 through 13. Lastly, we discover Jesus confronting a blatant sinner and his reactions to Jesus' love towards him. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there with the name, by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy and hated. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed to a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. The result? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, this is, uh, Jesus reached out and, t- and said, I'm coming to your house today, which I didn't put in there. I don't know how I missed that, but I did. <coughs> Z- Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give you half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You know you cannot be found unless you know that you are lost. James gives a clear clarion command, Don't show favoritism. Don't do it. He condemned... That's one thing about um, James... Really, actually, James and Paul are, are very similar. But, ja- but anyway, James, James is very, don't do it. <laughs> you know, just an exhorter. God shows no such favoritism. Neither 
but therefore neither should Christians. Uh, this was a cool story, and this is in a book called A Life Beyond Amazing, and um, I have not read all of it. Bob laboriously read the book. I shouldn't say that. The first chapter on the way home from the beach yesterday or whenever, and um, and this story was in it. I said, Oop, I'm reading that one to the Bible thing. Okay, this is called, I'm just going to read this little this story. Who gets married on a Tuesday? That's what the family and friends of Kim and Scotty Madison wondered when they opened their invitation to the couple's Tuesday wedding. But to Kim and Scotty, it made perfect sense. Kim lived in Nashville, where she raised her five children after a tough divorce. Scotty also just divorced, traveled to Nashville on business. Friends introduced them, and from the day they met, they shared a commitment to taking things slowly and making sure any relationship that developed would be prayerfully considered. When I was navigating the dating world after my divorce, my pastor said, Kim, the right man for you is the one who would be serving the homeless whether you were there or not, Kim recalled. Sure enough, the night Scotty traveled to Nashville to ask Kim to consider dating him seriously was also the night she committed to overseeing midweek worship at a Nashville women's mission. She said yes to the date on the condition that Scotty would join her in the mission, and she added since he'd <clears throat> be coming anyway that he could be the guest speaker. Scotty agreed, and that night he spoke from his heart to the women about losing his son to heroin, about living a strong life in the aftermath of such a tragedy. I heard his heart for Jesus, and I saw his desire to serve others, Kim said. I knew that night God wanted us to be together. Not long after that, they were invited to volunteer at the Bridge Ministry, a 13-year-old ministry serving the homeless under the Jefferson Street Bridge in Nashville. This was a sector of our society I used to look through and around. You know, when you don't, when you come to a stop sign and there's some people begging on the thing, and you know, you, you avert the eyes. You know, I used to look through and around. Scotty says, "Now I look into the eyes and souls of those who are hurting." Jesus said, "They will know you by your love." Serving, listening, hugging, praying with these special people alongside Kim is where I am the happiest and most fulfilled. By Christmas, Scotty made it clear to Mary Kim, and she felt the same way. Over the following month, the couple prayed about God's timing for the wedding and the details. Of course, Nashville offered plenty of beautiful venues, and there were a number of Fridays and Saturdays that would have worked out just fine, but that's not what God showed them. This is the part that I wanted y'all to hear, but you had to hear this other stuff. Both Kim and Scotty felt the Lord showed them in the same location and time under the Jefferson Street Bridge on a Tuesday night when they could celebrate and serve the homeless. It was a real destination wedding, Scotty said, smiling, and we shared it with our special guests, those whom Jesus wanted invited to the wedding banquet, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. We'd reached a point in our lives where we recognized Christ's love is centered around serving. Kim adds, we wanted our friends and family to know and hear, this is who we are. Will you now serve along with us? And so, in May the 9th, 2017, they gathered with their guests, including more than 200 of their homeless friends. Everyone enjoyed, this is the part that's so cool, everyone enjoyed an amazing meal, a worship service, and a heartfelt ceremony, knowing that to the homeless, a slice of wedding cake meant they were truly guests who mattered. Kim and Scotty made sure everyone had all the wedding cake they wanted. When Kim and Scotty were pronounced man and wife, they went down every aisle and greeted their guests individually. No one who attended that wedding left unmoved 
or unchanged. Why? Because Kim and, Scott, Kim and Scotty took the love that filled their hearts when they served the homeless, and they gave it back, bestowing it abundantly and permanently on every one of their wedding guests. I just shut, it might be in the first chapter. Oh. Uh, pages one through three, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was hard to see. Oh, man. Okay. Scripture tells us, for God does not show favoritism. Romans two eleven, And in Ephesians 6, 9, he says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. No favoritism. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, Paul says in Colossians, and there is no favoritism. After addressing the issue, James now states a hypothetical illustration. A gold-fingered and brilliantly clothed man comes into the meeting place, here designated as a synagogue, which emphasizes the Jewish character of both the epistle and the scene. A poor man in dirty clothes also enters. Special attention literally means to gaze upon, a fixedly gaze upon, almost as if they were longingly wishing they were them when they come in. Like, oh, I wish I had that or wish I was that way. Um, And preferential seating is given to the rich man and standing room only for the inferior, which is a seat on the floor, literally under my footstool is what the wording means, is afforded the poor man. The illustration is followed by a penetrating inquiry. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? The question in Greek assumes an affirmative answer. James's brother, brethren must plead guilty not only to discriminatory divisions, but also to assuming the role of judges with evil thoughts of partiality. Scripture tells us in Romans, Paul tells us in Romans 14, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why is it that we show such wide mouth, gaping affection for the celebrity or the royal or the athletic star or the hit music phenomenon or the whatever, placing them on some wobbly pedestal of our own making, yet the ordinary littles barely get our glance? Are we not in some way just like those in James' illustration above? Honestly, which would you we secretly want to sneak up and sit next to at a counter? Have we not also been found guilty of what James, as well as Jesus, instructs us not to do? What we're about to read may seem very insignificant at first glance, but after due reflection upon it, however, I hope you will see that it packs a powerful punch. I was thirsty and tired and just had a few moments to spare. I popped into a small, old-fashioned soda fountain to purchase their specialty, a limeade. As I approached the counter, I noticed a woman sitting slumped, shouldered at the end of the line of the stools. She looked haggard and frail, unkempt and drawn. I thought I recognized her face as someone that I had gone to high school with, but I was not quite sure I had the right person. I felt the Holy Spirit move me to ask her, Is your name Cheryl? Immediately, almost as if a bright light turned on, she looked at me with the most angelic smile I'd ever seen and responded, yes. 
exchanged some small pleasantries and I paid for my line made and left. And that's the story. But what God showed me later broke my heart. In high school, this girl was anything but attractive. She was homely. She was painfully shy. I can still remember changing classes and seeing her in the halls, looking down at the floor, trying to get to her destination as quickly as possible with no one looking at her. Changing classes was fun for most kids. You saw your friends, you laughed, you kidded around with them. But to Cheryl, you could tell it was a painful ordeal. Her objective was to draw as little attention to herself as possible. She always appeared very sad and thinking back on it, friendless. As I was praying a few days later, God overwhelmed me, as he always does, with the truth that broke my heart and reduced me to a puddle of tears. How could four little words totally change the countenance of a person? What made this drawn woman become angelic in her demeanor? Someone knew her name. Someone remembered her. Four small words made her feel valuable and gave her worth. I was overcome. How often did I pass her by in high school without uttering a word? How many times did I miss God's blessing by being so self-absorbed that I did not reach out and show compassion to the hurting, to the lonely, to the friendless? I was so sorry. I received the blessing all right. I received the blessing all right. I saw an angel, and all I did was utter four small words. Who's your name, Cheryl? Indeed, Solomon hits the mark when he says in Proverbs, He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Um, James gives his readers this plea. Listen, my dear brothers, and goes on to explain why their preferential judgment was wrong. He made his point through four questions, each of which anticipated an affirmative answer. First, has not God chosen those who are poor materially but are rich spiritually to inherit his promised kingdom? He, he is referencing James 1.9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. I'm reminded of the prophetess Anna, who was 84 and had been a widow for 77 of those 84 years. When Jesus was being presented to the temple by Mary and Joseph when he was eight, years, eight days old, Scripture states of her, there was also a prophetess Anna, the daughter of, somebody, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. <laughs> 66. <laughs> she had lived with her husband seven years. Seven years she had lived with her husband after that, um, after that he died, and she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Because of her faithfulness, God allowed her the amazing privilege to see with her own eyes the child through whom the redemption of Jerusalem would come and our redemption would come. Surely she would have not been counted by the Israelites as one of high standing. Oh, but in God's eyes, indeed, indeed. And let's certainly not forget our Savior whom Isaiah states, and we've already previously read a portion of this, But it's good to hear it again. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him by, stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him, and by my wounds, by his wounds, I am healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and to the sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was, this, I mean, this is Isaiah writing. This is like thousands of years before this transpired. It's amazing that the Bible is. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life into death and was not numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Paul also portrays so beautifully in Philippians 2, Jesus, all that Jesus gave up in order to save us. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being a very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We tend to mistakenly fall into the pattern of making earth our home when heaven is. Amen. We seem to get so comfortable, so fat and sassy, and we wah, 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 or spill milk or whatever. We foolishly store bridges here in lieu of sending them forward for safekeeping, and we so often wrongly equate having a big fat bank account to God's favor, and as we have discovered that it is certainly not always the right equation. God is the giver of all good things, and what he bestows is both for our enjoyment, for our good, and is for others. Indeed, we are accountable for the talents that he has placed in our hands. He has given to us, but not just simply for us, just like our, our giftings are given to us, but not for us, they're for the body. They are to be used both for his glory and our good. Two verses come to mind here. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store it for yourselves, this is Jesus, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Watch it in a life. You do what you love. You just do what you love. And what I, I, I love about this is when he was talking about when he gives, he is such a good God. He gives and he gives and he gives. But what he doesn't want you to do is make it your God. Make it that you have to have that. I mean, it can be a person. It could be a thing. It could be a status. I don't know what it is. Live your life like this. What he lets come through your life, he likes for you to enjoy it. Ecclesiastes tells us that. There's no greater thing to enjoy what he gives you. But, but he is the all in all. You can be content with just him. More than content. Peter adds, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. I don't know if y'all experience some of this or not. I mean, God has to teach me in so many different ways. I don't even want to tell you how bad your teacher <laughs> But, I mean, you know, things break. Things get moth holes. Things, you know, get lost. You know, it's, it's, when you're living for things, it's like it, they, they don't ever satisfy. And, and, and the way he showed things like this, so it's, it's so true what he says, you know, that, that this is kept in heaven. This, there's never going to perish, spoil, or fade. I mean, even gold is going to perish. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. We See, I think what our problem is is that we so look on the world and we don't think about heaven at all. We don't think about going forward or what it's really going to be like. In this we should be greatly rejoicing, he says. Though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your life your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. First Peter 1, 3 through 9. <clears throat> Second question James gives his readers is this. Are not the rich the ones who are consistently guilty of oppression, extortion, and slander? Literally blasphemy. They wield their positions and influence against them. And James's Jewish audience would have had to have been shaking their heads. Yeah, indeed. That's what they do. You're right. Thirty asks, are they not the ones who are dragging them into court? And again, affirmative answer, yes. Lastly, in the fourth inquiry, he says, are they not the ones who slander Jesus' noble name? As believers, we belong to Jesus and not to the rich exploiters. Jesus' readers would have had to agree with all this contention and to recognize the insulting, <clears throat> that insulting the poor and favoring the rich was wrongly and totally unreasonable. The alternatives was clear, pristinely clear. Love is always the 
correct response. And also, love never fails. Everything else fails. But there are prophecies they will cease, where their tongues will be still, where there's knowledge will pass away, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and I became a man and put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. We put our childish ways behind us. We are to grow up in him. Grow up in him. Favoritism is sin. James was optimistic here. The if clause, if you really keep the royal law, was written in Greek in such a way that it, <clears throat> it gave it an obedience response was anticipated. The royal law, of course, was given in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one another, one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirmed that in Matthew 22.39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. The royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. The law is royal or regal because it is decreed by the king of kings and the lord of lords. And is fit for a king. And it is considered the king of laws. The phrase reflects the Latin lex regia or whatever known throughout the Roman Empire. Obedience to this law of non-preferential love is the answer to the evident disobedience to God's law in prejudicial favoritism. God's desire for us is to love him and to love others. All of God's laws boil down to that. Every soul is precious to him. Every soul. And he has chosen the poor of the world made wealthy by faith as heirs of his kingdom in which all who love him shall have a part. To despise these is to dishonor him who recognized them as his own children and to be a respecter of persons. Preferring one over another is to violate the letter and the spirit of the sacred command. James was aware there would be some who would tend to dismiss their offense of prejudice as a trivial fault. I mean, don't we say, like, oh, well, this, it's okay to... I'm not really gossiping, I'm just telling you. Or, you know, you take these, what we call trivial sins, if anything is trivial, and we try to make ourselves feel better by thinking it's okay, it's not that big of a deal, you know, everybody does this, or whatever. And James did not want him to them to take this um, offense of prejudice as trivial. No sin, no sin is trivial in God's eyes. And the further you walk with him, the pickier he gets. <laughs> Truly. It's like, okay, you know, because as you as you as you narrow, as you get older and you know, he's prefer all these peripheral things that aren't necessary that are getting clipped off, you know, then I remember thinking, um, when we were I've told you all this before at that seminar in California it was like, you know, you've come a long way when you've gotten you're you're getting rid of good things for better things rather than just bad things for good things. Um, sin cost God the life of his son and God never looks lightly upon it nor does he wink at it as if boys will be boys type of attitude 
He doesn't laugh and sneer or make fun. Yet James's audience would hardly have considered themselves as lawbreakers. James went on to make it clear that this was no small offense in God's eyes. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just on one point is guilty of breaking all of it. There was no special indulgences. Utilizing the extreme instances of adultery and murder, James shows the absurdity of the inconsistent obedience. Total obedience is always the key. The slightest infringement of the law indicates the self-will and lack of subjection of the heart. Like, and also the lack of trust that you don't believe what he's got is your best interest. The Christian must be careful that he does not act inconsistently with his profession. One must both habitually speak and act as those to be judged by the law. God's law, because of its wise constraints, brings true freedom. That's what obedience is freedom. Everything else is bondage. James told us in James 1.25, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Disobedience to God's law bridges, <coughs> brings bondage, always. There's always death to sin. And to those who have not been merciful, God's judgment is without mercy. Just as love triumphs over prejudice, mercy triumphs over judgment. God has ordained unalterable laws. These laws are both for our good and his glory, never one surpassing the other. His desire is for us to come to spiritual maturity, to grow up in him, which to attain requires our consistent obedience to his laws and ways. And they are not burdensome, as scripture says. We are to be most careful that we do not act inconsistently with our profession. We do much harm to the body of Christ when we do. We are not perfect, and therefore quick repentance is always the key. We fall, we fall, we fall again. But that we don't, we don't lay down and wallow like a two-year-old. We do ourselves much disservices by wallowing in the pig pen. It gets us nowhere fast. I mean, just play out the prodigal. Follow him all the way out, you know, from the, the time he was in his father's palace all the way to the pig pen. And finally he looks up, and that's what Jesus wants from us. Look up, look up, look up. It gets us nowhere fast. And the quicker we turn, the better we are. God desires for us to turn away from our sin towards him in repentance and forgiveness and restoration a hundred times a day, which I, I don't know about y'all, but I'm always having to do it. I was like, why? Where did that come from? How did I feel that? You know what I'm saying? Quick repentance is key. He is faithful to bring us back to our place of departure. That's what really repentance is, is turning you back to your place of departure, where you came from. Praise you, Jesus. Remember, if you claim to be a Christian, then be a Christian. Why do you claim it if you don't want to be it or you don't do it? We do much disservice to the body when we do that. We have a message, and you're constantly delivering it. You may not even know what it is. It may be a message of redemption or of guilt or of confidence or of insecurity, of faith or of doubt. But one way or another, your life is an embodied message of whatever you believe to be true. That's frightening, isn't it? We can handle the thought of delivering a message when God tells us to, 
the thought that we are always implicitly living a message means we may have preached against the gospel many, many times by our actions, not our words, or maybe words. Every time we sowed seeds of discord, every time we got comfortable with sin, every time we said something that minimized God's goodness or exaggerated our own, we gave a false message. We might think we've never presumed to speak for God, but as creatures made in his image, we have. We may have spoken truth, or we may have spoken lies, but we have spoken. Wearing the name of Christian, we have made some kind of impression, either positive or negative, or a combination of both on this world. That's Chris Tigreen. Some men die by shrapnel, and some go down in flames, but most men perish inch by inch playing little games. Daniel was a spiritual man. This is Greg Laurie. In spite of the environment he was in, like I've said before, I would have loved to be able to interview Daniel's mother and father. I mean, really, to send a 15, 16-year-old boy over to Babylon in the midst of all there, carried there away to Babylon, he could have easily fallen into compromise. There in the palace, he literally lived in a lap of luxury. It was a place of rampant idolatry, incredible cruelty, and sexual immorality. 16-year-old boy now and his friends. They had a made-up mindset. Teach your kids made-up mindsets. <laughs> it's important. Don't go back. Don't give yourself an out. Don't let yourself have an out, because you'll take it every time. Sometimes we're so soft on ourselves and so hard on everybody else. Yet in the midst of it all, Daniel remained a righteous man and flourished spiritually. Sometimes when we are in an environment around Christians all the time, we can put our lives on spiritual cruise control. On the other hand, when we are in a secular environment, it forces us to do one or two things, either blend into the woodwork or stand up and be counted. The believer's works are going to be judged by Jesus, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Scripture also tells us that fire will test the quality of each man's work, each believer's work. Not, this is not for salvation. This is for reward. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation, Paul says, as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Watch what you're building with. For no one can lay any foundation, which is Jesus, other than the one already laid, which is Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. Under the divine government, men reap as they sow. And with what judgment they judge others, they are judged themselves. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Sometimes, you know, it's like, um, I guess it was Beth Moore saying it. can't remember now, but anyway. You know, somebody had done something bad to her, and I think I've told you all this before, and she's praying on her face in the inner study or wherever, and it was almost like God was saying, well, what do you want me to do to this person? 
And she starts thinking, mercy, have mercy. That's what you do for me. I don't want you to take, don't take away my, the mercy I need. You know, when you look at somebody else's and you see them, even those that have been despicable to you, you, you consider consider what is what is doing it? What is in that mo- motive behind that? What what's hurting them? Why are they acting this way? Look beyond that. Pray for them. I mean, you don't. I mean, it's sad. It's sad. These so many people are in bondage today to so many things, and it's it's um it's so easy just to disregard it, disregard them, or just write them off or whatever instead of loving somebody back into the fold or loving somebody into the fold. Um, We really have no rights as believers. You know, we're stripped of that. We are his. We've been bought with a price. We're to honor him with our bodies. It's like, how am I to flesh you out, Lord, with every encounter I have today, whether it's with the lady at Publix or with the man that's honking his horn at me or you know, I don't know what response is coming gonna come out of my heart when I'm squeezed. It's important because God sees all. And we all live Coram Deo before the before the face of God. Every single one of us. I mean we might fool our, our closest companions, our spouses, our children. We might fool everybody. And people have been fooled. But you're not going to fool God. You never, ever, ever fool him. I think about David's encounter and all the times, you know, and finally he, he just had to be blatantly. And sometimes it takes, y'all, sometimes it takes that the hard. Surround yourself with people that you are held accountable to. Because if you if you don't, hey, I didn't even see you over there. <laughs> she had been in Africa. <laughs> if, you, if you are... Um, uh, not held accountable. We're so soft in ourselves. Be willing to accept what somebody may say to you, even if it's hard out of love, and apply it to your life if it's what scripture, if, what, if it fits. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, because somebody, I, I love it when somebody does that to me. I mean, I do, because I don't want to wallow. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to be, be better. But anyway, um, I don't know where, got, where I got off of that. Uh, but Farrell testified, oh, it will be real. Oh, God. Under the divine government, men reap as they sow. And with what judgment they judge others, they judge themselves. But mercy triumphs over judgment. It is not the desire of God to deal harshly with anyone. He is ever ready to forgive and bless where sin is recognized and repented of. That's what I'm saying. That. Turn, 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 turn. As objects... Um, of divine mercy, we ourselves are also called upon to show mercy and compassion to others, no matter how lowly their condition may be. For we will not be shown mercy if we do not demonstrate mercy. Indeed, the Lord will be severe regarding those who have shown no mercy to others and merciful towards those who have not demonstrate, who have demonstrated mercy. Blessed are the merciful, he tells us in Matthew 5, 7, for they will be shown mercy. Michael Yusuf says, it is no more natural today to exercise mercy than it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus pronounced these magnificent words. In Roman society, mercy indicated weakness. 
that you didn't have strength of a real Roman citizen. Today, our cultural disdains mercy and glorifies brutality. Or it takes the other extreme, promoting a cheap version of mercy that glosses over sin. That's another thing. You're doing no one, no one, including yourself, favors to gloss over sin in your life. Because it brings death. It will bring death to something. Jesus' mercy is neither weak nor cheap. It doesn't wink at sin or refuse to deal with wrongdoing. Jesus' mercy flows from love and produces forgiveness. It does not ignore justice, but it is self-justice. It is not grounded upon sentimentality, but upon his blood that is poured out for us on the cross as payment for our sin. Because of God's grace, mercy and justice meet at the cross. Jesus is calling us to be conduits of his mercy to others. When you show mercy, when you reach out to others to meet their needs in compassion and with generosity and to build relationship in humility, you open your heart to receive mercy from the hand of God day by day. When you exercise mercy, you break the spiritual bondage that is stopping you up from growing in grace. For when you show mercy, God's spirit is mercifully at work, transforming you into Christ-likeness and making you fruitful for the kingdom of God. Thus, it's truly is to be merciful. Those, thus, it truly is the merciful who receive mercy. It's, it, you can't ever outgive God either. And, like, and when you're serving somebody and you're looking at their faces, if you just see Jesus' face, it makes it a whole lot easier than some of the people that you, you know, they're in front of you that are, are rallying against you or, or whatever. Mercy really does give back. It so does. It does. I mean, it does. It's amazing. I know it. The believer is commanded to accept his brother with courtesy, with compassion, and with consistency. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword, and it divides joint and mirror and soul and spirit and judges the thoughts and our attitudes of our hearts, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that you would just work on us, that we would grow up in you, that we would not be... Um, content to sit soak and sour lord but apply what you've told us and taught us in our lives that we would be a changed people and father i just pray that we would bring the aroma of christ to every situation we're in and that you would use us all in mighty ways to further your kingdom i pray for protection over this this group all those that are sick lord and and for all those that are here lord that they're families would be protected lord that their children would know you love you and serve you at an early age and and, and Lord, I just pray that there would never be um, anybody from any of our chicken pools that doesn't know you, love you, and serve you with all their heart. Lord, make us um, however you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.